Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you'd open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, Romans the 6th chapter, we're going to read a verse that uh, I think will probably be very familiar to many of us. Romans chapter 6, going to read that verse, and it'll serve as the catalyst for all of our thoughts of our study this morning. There'll be lots of Bible in store for these next few minutes, and so you'll want to get a Bible out and be following along. Romans 6 will be our first stop. And as you're turning there, let me join in the welcome from earlier and say just what a what a great number we have in attendance today. Just so glad that you are here. We do have uh, several of our number that are out of town. They're visiting and worshiping in other places this morning. But we are really grateful to have lots of other folks who are out of town. You're worshiping with us today. And we're just really appreciative that you've come our way and hope that you find everything that we are doing today to be done in spirit and in truth. I do want to say that it is encouraging to see so many who have chosen... Put the Lord first today, because regardless of what date the calendar says today is, and regardless of all of the fun things that we might be looking forward to be doing with our families, this, what we are doing here, this is of the utmost importance. This is the primary thing. It is the Lord's day. And as a result of that, the Lord, He summons us, His worshipers, to come and to honor Him and to give Him the glory that He so richly deserves. And every time that summons is made, the true people of God, they answer that summons. So thank you so much for being here today and for the encouragement that you provide by your presence and by your participation. In Romans chapter 6 then, a verse that many of us probably can quote from memory, verse 23, Paul says, Romans 6 verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to emphasize that expression there, the free gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, a free gift. That, that just sounds pretty great. But I want to suggest to you this morning that there has actually never been a more expensive gift. Now there have certainly been some expensive gifts that have been given all throughout human history. For example, that... That is a purse that David Beckham gave to his wife, Victoria. They make only three of those purses a year. It's called the Silver Himalayan. It is made from white crocodile skin, and it has a three-carat diamond as its locket. That purse sent David Beckham back $129,000. Wow, fellas, that just made all the Christmas gifts that we tried to buy for our wives just look pretty meager and measly in comparison, didn't it? But actually, Mr. Beckham can't even begin to compare to this gift. This, this is the Orloff Diamond. The Orloff Diamond was given to Catherine the Great by Count Gregory Orloff. They were believed to have been carrying on a a, a romantic affair. She had given him 800 peasants, a country estate, and built him a giant palace. And in return, as a token of his affection, he gave her that rock. That diamond has almost 200 carats. It is about half the size of a chicken egg. And she then took that diamond and incorporated it into her scepter. That, as you can probably guess, is an expensive gift. And yet even that pales in comparison to this. That's the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal was a gift from the Emperor Shah Jahan to celebrate the memory of his beloved wife. It is, it is a mausoleum. 
And its construction began in 1632 and it took 22 years to build that monstrosity, to build that gift. 20,000 craftsmen and workers all worked on that giant project, that giant white marble building, the cost of which is estimated to be about $827 million. That's in current U.S. currency. You see, there's been a lot of very, very costly gifts. Yet I'm going to say again, none of those gifts compare to the cost of the gift in Romans 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody says, Josh, what are you talking about? The cost of that gift. Romans 6.23 says that this gift is free. Yes, it does. I just read that verse. I realize it. it does say that it's a free gift. And there is a sense in which that gift is free. But you know, every gift, every gift comes with some cost, doesn't it? Somebody had to pay for those gifts, right? Somebody had to pay for all of those gifts. There is a a price tag. There is a price that is attached to any and every gift that is given. And that's what we're talking about this morning. This morning we are talking about the high cost of this free gift. What is the cost of this gift in Romans 6 verse 23? What is the cost of salvation? Because that is what this verse is talking about, isn't it? Salvation in Jesus Christ, being saved from sin, eternal life in heaven. There's not any gift more valuable than the one Paul is discussing in this little verse. And so what we want to know is, we want to know, well, what exactly is the price tag? Is it really free? And if it's not really free, then who's actually footing the bill? This morning, if you are interested in going to heaven... And I'd sure like to think that anybody that would be in this building on the Lord's Day morning, you're here because you are interested in going to heaven. Then what you need to do this morning is you need to open up your heart and your mind. You need to listen to the Word of God. You need to give careful attention to the sticker price for salvation. Let's talk this morning about the high cost of this free gift. And I want to start all of that by just saying, number one, that this free gift, it'll actually cost you. Something. Did you know that? This free gift, first of all, it will cost you the right to earn your salvation. How many times maybe throughout your life have you maybe seen a family, known of a family, that has maybe fallen on hard times, they're in a financially stressful situation, and then maybe a group of folks get together, they're going to try to pull their resources together and try to provide some help and provide some assistance for their family. But then somebody in that family... Usually the man, he speaks up and he says, we don't take charity from nobody. We don't do any of that stuff. Nobody's going to give us anything. We're not accepting any gifts from anyone. You've seen that kind of thing before. I've seen that kind of thing before. And that is a very can-do kind of mentality. You know, we're, we're Americans. We're rugged Americans. And so we're just going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I don't need anybody's charity. Don't need anybody's help. I can just do it all by myself. And while that attitude may work in certain facets of life, I want you to know this morning that that kind of thinking is utterly destructive in matters of salvation. That you cannot, spiritually speaking, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and save yourself. Find Ephesians chapter 2 with me, please. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2, look in verse 8. In Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 8, Paul says here, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you see how that passage harmonizes with what Paul's already said in Romans 6 verse 23? That it is the gift of God. And it is something that cannot be earned. You will never deserve it. And it can never be a, you know, salvation can never be kind of a do-it-yourself project. I'm going to go down to the Salvation Depot and I'm going to get all the stuff that I need so that I can just do it myself and fix my salvation all by my lonesome. No. It is a gift. It is the ultimate charity. In fact, the word charity fits perfectly here in Ephesians 2 verse 8. Because the Greek word for grace, which is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, that is where our English word charity is derived from. And what Paul says here is that the grace of God, the salvation, the forgiveness that comes from God, it is an act of charity. It is something that is gifted to you through faith. You cannot earn this. But let's be honest. That's what many people would like to do when it comes to salvation. That's exactly what many people are actually trying to do. If you were to just ask somebody about whether or not they're going to heaven, and they reply and say, why, why yes, I, I do believe that I am going to heaven. And you can follow that up by asking, well, well, how do you know? How are you sure that you're going to heaven? What are you going to hear pretty soon? Pretty soon what you're going to hear is they're going to say, well, well, because I'm a good person. Because I do good things. In fact, I've done a lot of good things in my life. You hear this kind of thing, particularly, I think, at, at funerals. People come to a funeral... And they eulogize the deceased. And they say things like, Oh, Aunt Bertha, I tell you, Aunt Bertha, she was just so good. She was just the finest woman that you ever did meet. Finest woman I've ever known. And I'll tell you this, if she doesn't make it to heaven, nobody can make it to heaven. Do you hear it? Do you hear it there? By virtue of Aunt Bertha having done all of these good things, she has now somehow earned her way into heaven. Or, you know, Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob, I tell you, Uncle Bob doesn't come any finer than Uncle Bob. Boy, that fella, he never heard a flea. He was just so kind to everybody. He came to church every time the doors were open. I just know, I just know Uncle Bob's going to heaven. Do you hear it? What's that saying? What's that saying there about the basis of salvation for those various loved ones? It's saying that salvation is based upon the good things that they did. That they just, they just did so many good works and as a result, they just earned their salvation. They just did so much good stuff that God had no choice but to grant them eternal life. That's just how it works. In people's minds, that's how it works. You do good, you get good. That's just, that's just a fair trade-off. You do good things, you're gonna get good things. Biblically though, biblically that's not how it works. Biblically, it will never work like that. Look in Romans chapter 5, please. In Romans chapter 5, the truth of the matter is, let's just back up on this good thing. truth of the matter is, we're not all that good. In Romans chapter 5, look in verse 6. In Romans chapter 5 and in verse 6, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died 
for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But I tell you, that passage ought to humble us. That passage really ought to put our, put us in our place. That we are weak. We are ungodly. We are sinners. In fact, let me add to that what John says in 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, how exactly does this whole salvation thing, how does it get started in the first place? Is it because, boy, we're just down here and we're just doing so much good stuff. We just, we, we're down here loving God so much that God says, wow, those folks are impressive. I ought to do something for them. I ought to save those folks. Is that how this all works? Actually, John says, no. 1 John chapter 4, look in verse 9. John says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, it's about what God has done to make salvation possible. Not something that I've done to somehow merit salvation. No, salvation is God's matchless gift that He extends as an expression of His love. And somebody maybe in all of this would be saying, Josh, are, are you trying to imply, are you trying to say that our obedience to God, that that's not important here? Absolutely I'm not saying that. Our obedience to God is critically important. But what we need to remember is that our obedience to God's commands, that does not mean that we have somehow earned that salvation. I obeyed God, so... So now He owes me. He has to give this to me. I deserve this. I earn this. If if Randy, if Randy offers to give me his Camaro, make sure I get that right this morning. If Randy offers to give me his Camaro, that if I'll just come to his house and pick up the keys and he'll, he'll then give me that Camaro, the fact that I go and drive eight miles to Randy's house to pick that up, does that mean that I have now earned that Camaro? Absolutely not. What I've done is I've just simply followed the instructions that Randy has given to me so that I can then accept his generous gift. In much the same way, when I follow God's instructions to accept his generous gift, the gift of salvation, I haven't earned that. I have simply been the recipient of the greatest act of charity that this world has ever known. And you know what? That's something I feel like I need to be reminded of, and I hope that you need to be reminded of that as well. Lest I ever begin to think that salvation is somehow of my own doing, because it most certainly is not. It is the gift of God. In the words of Luke chapter 17 and in verse 10, that even after I have done all that God has commanded me to do, at the end of the day, I am still just an unworthy servant. And that is the attitude of humility that allows a person to give up this faulty thinking that we can ever earn our salvation. But I want you to know this morning that 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 is not the only cost associated with salvation. That's not the only cost associated with this free gift. Let me tell you secondly, that this gift, it costs God. In fact, it costs God tremendously. Now, how is it possible for sinful creatures like you and I How is it possible for us to be in fellowship with a holy God? If God is perfectly just, 
If He is absolutely righteous as the Scriptures describe Him to be, how in the world then can you and I be together with Him? How can we then avoid the punishment of sin that our sins deserve and God still be righteous and God still be just? Just think about it. What kind of God would God be if we could just kind of break His law willy-nilly? Just break His law with impunity and nothing ever happened? Nothing ever happened as a result of that. There was no consequences for our sin whatsoever. Who in the world is going to take seriously a God like that? A God who gives His Word, who says that the wages of sin is death, but then but then when people run all over His law, He didn't do anything about that. Yeah, that's not going to really work at all. Nobody's going to serve a God like that. And that is not what our God is all about. Our God is committed to justice. Our God is committed to punishing sin. How then is it possible for sinners to be welcomed into eternity into heaven? Well, that's why our original text in Romans 6 verse 23 has that little phrase in it at the end. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus becomes the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus pays that price through the giving of His body, through the shedding of His blood. Look in Ephesians chapter 1, please. In Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 7, Paul talks here about something pertaining to price. In Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 7, Paul says here, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. It is Jesus who makes it possible for sinners to be reconciled unto God. And that word redemption clues us into the fact that there was a price to pay on God's part. That word redemption means to buy back. It means to pay a ransom fee. Well, what exactly was that cost? What exactly did it cost God? I want to tell you, it cost God dearly. First of all, let's think about the Father. The Father paid a huge price for you and I to have salvation. Because that price involved Him sending His Son, His Son leaving heaven and coming here to live as a man. What was that like? What was that like for the Father and the Son to be a part in that way? What was that like? That just seems almost unthinkable to my mind. And then, of course, when the Son actually got here, how was the Son treated? You know and I know the son was not treated very well whatsoever. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was shoved around. Ultimately, he was beaten. He was made to wear a crown of thorns on his brow. He was made to drag his own cross to a hill outside of Jerusalem. He was made to have nails driven into his hands and into his feet. And ultimately, he was made to die one of the most agonizing, torturous forms of death imaginable. I often wonder, what effect did that have on the Father? To have to watch all of that taking place to His Son. Look in Romans chapter 8, please. In Romans chapter 8, so often when we talk about the sacrifice of Jesus, we think about it from the perspective of Jesus. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul actually casts the spotlight for a moment on the Father. Think about the Father's perspective in all this. In Romans 8, look in verse 32. In Romans 8 verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? 
You know, we sing that song from time to time. He could have called 10,000 angels, and that is exactly right. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. But when you think about it, what's so amazing about the cross is that the Father didn't just go ahead and send the angels whether Jesus asked or not. They have to see His Son being crucified, murdered by the hands of lawless men. What must that have been like? What great suffering the Father endured. What a terrible price the Father paid. And of course, it's not just the Father. What about the extraordinary price that the Son paid? With me in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul, as best as he can, tries to summarize the suffering of the Son. In Philippians chapter 2, read with me beginning in verse 5. In Philippians 2 and in verse 5, Paul says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. This is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is the one who is worthy of everyone's honor and glory. Verse 10, every knee should bow to Him. But of course when Jesus came here, every knee did not bow, did they? Verse 11, every name did not confess Him as the Lord. Instead, when Jesus came here, He was treated despicably. And He suffered terribly while He was on the cross. In fact, there is so much about the physical suffering that goes on whenever a person is crucified that reading, trying to read, the medical accounts of what the body endures, what the body goes through during that form of torture, it's it's almost too hard to read. It's almost too difficult to try to think and to imagine, to think about anybody going through that kind of horrendous pain and torture. I want you to think about this morning that Jesus' suffering, it wasn't just physical suffering on the cross. That's probably what gets our greatest attention. But Jesus suffered in other ways. In fact, here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul seems to kind of indicate some of that. The fact that He came to this earth, giving up heaven. What kind of suffering would that be? To leave heaven and come to this place. To make Himself nothing. And to be a servant when you are the Son of God. Think about as well. Think about the emotional anguish that Jesus endured on this, on this earth. Think about how He suffered when He prayed in the garden. And how He wept in the garden of Gethsemane. Asking God the Father to let this cup pass if it would be His will. Matthew 26 verse 39. Think as well, think about the mental anguish, the mental stresses of knowing, knowing that God's entire plan for man's salvation, it hinges upon His willingness to be obedient to the Father and to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 9 verse 28. What was it like for Jesus to have to carry around that knowledge? What was it like to know that you are the one time for all time sacrifice for sin? What's that like? The Son, the Son I am submitting to you paid a most incredible cost. And then what about as well? What about the Spirit? What about the Holy Spirit? I believe the Holy Spirit pays a price in salvation. In John the 16th chapter, please. In John chapter 16, 
Jesus is preparing His disciples for the moment in which He is going to leave this earth. And He wants them to be prepared. He wants them to be ready for what's going to happen next. In John chapter 16, read with me in beginning in verse 7. In John 16 and in verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. Now that right there is a very brief description of the work that the Holy Spirit has been doing ever since the cross. The Holy Spirit has provided the Word of God. He provides the Gospel and furthermore the Holy Spirit protects that Word. And so think about what the Holy Spirit has gone through. In human history, there have been many, many, many attempts leveled against the Bible. Many attempts made by men to try and destroy the Word of God. Countless times there have been kings and dignitaries and officials and enemies of the cross who have said, we'll just collect all those Bibles up and we'll burn them. Or we'll enact laws that will ban the Bible from this country and people can't read that book. We don't want them to know about what's written in that book. And yet the Holy Spirit has fought through every single one of those attacks. The Bible still remains. So many people today, they continue to resist the call of the Word. And yet sometimes, even with that knowledge... Sometimes we act as if the Holy Spirit did not suffer in God's plan for salvation. But you know what? In a very real sense, isn't it true that the Holy Spirit's suffering is ongoing? That it continues even today as men and women push away the Word of God? As men and women resist the call of the Gospel? As men and women completely just try to ignore what the Word of God has to say? The good news of salvation? As people continue to reject that message through the written Word, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit suffers. The Holy Spirit pays a cost. You see, there's a huge cost here. God paid the price. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They have all suffered for you and for me to be able to have the opportunity to be saved eternally. If I could go back to that illustration of of Randy's car. If Randy says, hey... You just come to my house and you get the keys and this car is all yours. Well, that's a free gift to me. But somebody had to pay for that car. Randy, Janet, a really nice relative. Somebody had to foot the bill for that. That car did not just materialize out of thin air. Somebody had to write that check. Somebody had to pay that tax. And so when Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 that the free gift of God is eternal life, We need to know for certain that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, they're the ones picking up that tab for us. They're picking up the tab on this incredible gift. Which leads me then finally this morning to say something once again to us. I want to make sure that everybody within the sound of my voice, either this morning in this building or through the magic of the internet later on, Everyone understands just how high the cost of salvation is. Because thirdly, this gift, it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. Look with me in Luke, the ninth chapter, please. 
in Luke chapter 9, in the middle of this great gospel, that talks so much about, about discipleship, about what it means to follow Jesus, what all that is entailed in that. In Luke chapter 9 and in verse 23, Jesus says this. Luke chapter 9 verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Ah, somebody says, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. There's always strings attached. Anytime somebody's offering something free, there's always some kind of fine print. There's always some strings attached to it. And that right there seems like there's the strings attached to this gift of salvation. Maybe you get these things in the mail from time to time. On the outside of the envelope, it'll say something to the effect of, we've got a free gift for you. You're kind of excited about that. You open that thing up and you start reading through it and kind of maybe down there at the bottom in the small fine print that hardly anybody can read. Yep, there's all kinds of strings attached to that free gift. You've got to sign up for a membership. You've got to give them your information. You maybe got to give them your credit card info. And as you pretty quickly figure out, that free gift, nah, it's not all that free, is it? And sometimes I'm afraid that whenever we describe salvation to our friends and our loved ones and our neighbors, somehow I'm afraid it almost comes off sounding like one of those kinds of scam, hokey offers that we get in the mail. We start telling people, you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to do this over here, and you got to do that over there. And you know what? In the minds of many, it doesn't sound very much like it's much of a free gift. It sounds more like a gift that you have to earn. That you earn it by, by going to church. You earn it by reading your Bible every day. You earn it by praying every day. You earn it by abstaining from the pleasures of the flesh and of the world. you got to do all of this stuff. Well, if it wasn't made abundantly clear in point number one, let me just say again, that that is an entirely flawed and faulty way of looking at salvation. And I want to just say that if you are describing salvation to your friends and your neighbors in those kinds of terms, stop it! Stop doing that! You're messing it all up! Paul said it is a free gift. And if when we get done talking about that free gift, if it ends up sounding like something that we have worked for and we have earned, then we're not doing it right. We need to go back to the start. We need to hit the reset button, control, alt, delete, and somehow redo this thing. It is a gift. And it is a gift that will cost you everything. But not because you're working and you're earning it. No, this is a gift that will cost you everything because because it is a gift that changes everything. That's what makes this gift so costly. It will change everything about your life. You know, there are some gifts that you receive that they just change you so fundamentally that things can never ever be the same again. Think about those people that maybe win like the, like the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. They go overnight from being Joe Average to being Joe Super Millionaire. It's amazing. Or even somebody who wins like one of these Powerball jackpots. They win like $450 gazillion. They didn't earn that. It was total luck. It was just a free gift. But then when they are given that big giant cardboard check, their life changes, doesn't it? In fact, I've actually read, read some material, that when you come to get your check at lottery headquarters, 
They actually will sit you down and they'll give you a briefing. And they'll talk to you about how your life is going to be drastically different from this point forward. They'll tell you how you need to probably actually hire some security guards. You need to change your phone numbers and your passwords on your stuff. You need to do all of these different kinds of things because as soon as we give you this gift, your life will change. Now think about that. Hold on to that idea. And think about that in terms of salvation. How salvation is completely life-changing. We sang that song a few moments ago. A new creature. Listen to Jesus again in Luke 9 verse 23. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. Take up our cross daily and follow Him. What does it mean to take up the cross? In Jesus' day, if you saw someone carrying a cross down the street, you knew that they were on their way to what? They were on their way to being executed. They were going to be giving up their very lives. Jesus then borrows that metaphor to make a spiritual application to describe the kind of change life that salvation is calling for. The giving up completely of oneself. In fact, Jesus gets even more specific in Luke. Would you turn to Luke 14? In Luke the 14th chapter, Jesus says in verse 26, in Luke 14 and in verse 26, Jesus says there, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Sometimes people want to imagine that following Jesus can somehow be less than this. That it can be less than a life-altering, life-changing event. That somehow you can accept the gift of God, accept that gift of salvation, without being completely and totally changed through and through. Hence the reason you find so many people today who believe that you can just, you just kind of ask Jesus to come into your heart. You pray this little prayer. Maybe you hold your hands up in the air while you do that. And then suddenly you're saved. But as a result of that, you're, you're no different. Nothing's really changed about your life. You're saved. You kind of wear a different title now. Nothing's different about your life. You go on living your life just the way that you want. You keep on living the way you were before. Well, where's that in the Bible? And I'm not even talking about that false method of salvation of just praying a prayer. What about this notion that I can, that I can be saved? And then my life is just going to be totally unchanged by that. Where's that in the Bible? How can that possibly be? Look in Galatians chapter 2 and in verse 20. In Galatians 2 and in verse 20, when we sang that song, A New Creature, a moment ago, it actually uses some language from this verse. In Galatians 2 and in verse 20, Paul says there, I, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Some people want to imagine that salvation can be less than this. That it can be less than a life-altering, life-changing event. That somehow salvation just kind of works like this. You come forward. You get dunked in that tank of water back there. You come up. You dry off. You go home. Your sins are forgiven, but... But nothing about your life is any different. You keep carrying on the way that you were even before you were baptized. Listen to Paul again. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Christ is living in me. 
And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. If you accept this gift, and I do mean if you, you truly and genuinely accept this gift from a true and genuine heart, then everything about you will be changed. It must be changed. That what you value in life, that's going to change. What you want out of life, your goals, that's going to change. How you act at school, how you act in the workplace, how you act in your home, that's all going to change. Everything about you, in every relationship, in every facet, it's all going to change. You cannot earn this gift. You cannot deserve this gift. But when you accept this gift, what you are saying is you are saying, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. That is a huge statement. That is the kind of statement and attitude of heart that makes for real change. You know, maybe instead of using all these illustrations about sweepstakes or lotteries or even Randy's car, what we really ought to talk about is What if somebody gave their life in order to save yours? What if you're out in the middle of of the sea and you were drowning and somebody dived in and they swam out and they shoved you safely back into the boat, but in the process of doing that, they themselves got caught in a wave or got caught in the undertow and they ended up drowning and dying. What, What would your response be to that? What if somebody rushed into a burning building to save you, to rescue you? They carried you out. They saved your life. But in the process of doing that, they got some kind of an injury, maybe smoke inhalation or whatever it was. And as a result, they died. What if somebody died to save your life? You're going to tell me that that wouldn't have a profound effect on your life? You're going to tell me that that would not change you to your very core? Of course it would. We know that it would. Well, isn't that exactly what we're talking about when we talk about this free gift of salvation? You can't earn it and you can't deserve it. But when you realize that someone died for you, the spotless and sinless Lamb of God, He died to give you this gift that He loved you and gave Himself for you, to use the language of Galatians 2.20, how then can you not be changed by that? Here's maybe the real point of all of this. Can I say to you that when somebody extends such a great gift, a life-changing kind of gift, people don't say, eh, not for me. I, 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 I don't want that great gift. You know, the people at the publisher's clearinghouse, they come and knock on the door and they say, hey, we've got $300 million to award you. Somebody doesn't say, well... I don't know, it seems like a, like, a, like a lot of hassle to accept that gift. You know, you gotta pay all the taxes on it. There's all this paperwork that you gotta do. You gotta hire lawyers and do all that stuff. You guys just keep your check. I, I don't want that gift. Nobody says that. If you're out in the middle of the sea and you're drowning, and you're out there and you can't swim and you're about to die, nobody says to the guy who's swimming to save you, nobody says, hey, no, stop, stop, don't save me. Don't don't, don't do that. Don't bother with that. I'd rather you not save my life. Because if you save my life, then that means my whole life after this is going to be changed. I'm going to have to alter all the patterns in my life. I'd rather just drown, thank you. You just stay over there on the shore. Nobody says that. Those kinds of gifts are the very best kinds of gifts. 
We delight in those gifts that change who we are and change everything about us. We thrill to accept them and we thrill to be, to be changed by them. In Luke 24, here's actually the word that I'm looking for. It's the word that I've avoided using all the way up until this point. In Luke chapter 24, how does Jesus describe salvation? What does Jesus talk about whenever He talks about this gift? In Luke chapter 24, look in verse 47. In Luke 24 and in verse 47, talking about what's going to happen shortly after He ascends back into heaven. Luke 24 verse 47, He says that repentance repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In that one little word, repentance, Jesus encapsulates this idea of change. That I'm not going to just live in sin and live how I want to anymore. I'm not going to live that way. Because I've received a wonderful gift. I've received this free gift, this amazing gift, this costly gift, and so I now am going to repent. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to live differently now. I'm going to live to please Jesus and to walk in His footsteps. And that does mean that this is an extremely expensive gift. There's been a lot of expensive gifts that have been given. Purses, diamonds, giant marble mausoleums. But there has never been, nor will there ever be, a gift as costly, or on our end, a gift as valuable as the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It cost God. It cost Him dearly. And by that same token, if you accept this gift, It'll cost you dearly. It will cost you everything. But here's the kicker. Here's maybe the good news in all this. It's absolutely worth it. It is. It is absolutely worth it to pay that price even to give up everything. And so this morning, if you see the value of salvation in Jesus Christ, but you have yet to come and accept that gracious gift, And we're going to sing a song right now to encourage you to to change that. To do something about that. To become a Christian. To walk down this aisle confessing your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, as the Son of God. To repent and to turn from sin. That's that change that we're talking about. And yes, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. You can then know firsthand the wonderful, blessed joy of having that gift The gift of salvation by the grace of God. Can we help somebody to do that this morning? Brother or sister, it may very well be that once upon a time you knew and you really did understand the value and the cost of that gift, but somewhere along the way you you just kind of forgot. It's not as profound in your mind and in your life anymore. And as a result, it's caused you to, to slip away from the Lord, to not serve Him as you ought, not to carry your cross daily like He commands. You need to repent. That's what Jesus calls for in Luke 24, 47. Repentance. We can pray with you and encourage you to serve the Lord in a better way from this day going forward. And this invitation is yours as well. Wherever you might stand, and as we understand and as we think about the value of this great gift, why would anybody not want to accept that? Let's do that. Let's do it right now while we stand and while we sing.